I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. Darren Hinch, welcome to That's Life. Hello, Mr Tardio. What we're going to talk about uh, today is uh, multiculturalism. Now, it was the flavour of the period in the 70s, Malcolm Fraser, and it was it had bipartisan support. Both sides of politics supported multiculturalism. You know, we, we can go all the way back to after the war when it was the, the situation was populate or perish. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who are young, and we get a lot of people listening, explain what Australia was like after the war. Darren, how many people were here, how big the country was. Look, I'm glad to be multiculturalism, and you're the perfect person to talk about it with, but go back to those times. I mean, we, Australia was, force is the wrong word, but uh, by encouragement, became multicultural because after the war, people fled Europe by, by the millions, and many of them settled in Australia. Uh, even English migrants came here, and some of them forced young kids were told they were, they, were, they were orphans and when they weren't and came to Australia. But you had a lot of, lot of for, um, foreigners, as we called them, came to Australia, especially from Europe um, after the war. But then we also had the great, and I think probably the biggest move towards multiculturalism in Australia was, the, and you may agree or not, was the move from, of Italians to Australia because they came here and you had the, the Snowy River Project and things like that. And these migrants came here and worked, did labourers' jobs. Even people who had degrees were doing suddenly a labourers' job because that's all the job work they could get. And I think the Italian influx probably affected us as much as anything. We'd always had Chinese here because of uh, the gold rush and things like that. Um, but when the Italian influx came, I mean, you had a guy... Supposedly his name was Nino Colotto and he wrote a book called They're a Weird Mob and it was his life arriving in Australia and trying to adapt to Australian-isms, right? Um, I turned out, I think it was um, John O'Grady actually wrote was Nino Colotto, but it was a book that was, it was a bestseller and it sort of linked the, the, the problems we had between Aussies and, and, and Wogs, right? Um, and so... But we, we, we are a multicultural country and it's not just food and things like that and et cetera, et cetera. But we, I, I, I'm a migrant. So, uh, I mean, I was I, coming from New Zealand, I was regarded as a, uh, as a migrant and as a foreigner. Uh, the, the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald called Guy Harriet, when I was editor of The Sun, once in an argument insulted me by calling me a white boom. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd come from uh, from New Zealand, you know, and 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 I know that that people and I used the word wog advisedly because I was in the two of the wog boy movies, so I I can I can get away with it. Um, a bit like the way that Jewish people tell the worst Jewish jokes, and uh, only rap artists in America, black rap artists, could use the word nigger. Um, but but the the, the the wog syndrome and, and the and the stuff that that that. Um, that, that Actors and singers and, and, and cooks did made it made this a better country. 
Well, the 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 phrase was the catchphrase was uh, "populate or perish," yep. because I think they realised that you know it was untenable for Australia to remain a a small population country in, on such a big land mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they you know actively sought to get people from overseas to come. That's true. The, the, they the wanted ten, Northern uh, Europeans initially. They didn't yeah, they wanted, really... They wanted, they wanted 10 pound migrants. They wanted white people. I mean, you had Arthur Caldwell, who was the leader of the Labor Party, making that disgusting but infamous comment, two Wongs don't make a white. That was the leader of the Labor Party in Australia. said, two Wongs don't make a white. Unbelievable when you look back, isn't it? <clears throat> well, Australia had a white Australia policy. For years, yes. Uh, and we didn't, we didn't let Aborigines vote till about 1967 mm. either. So they initially sought to get Northern Europeans, so I guess, yep. you know, Scandinavians and these sort of countries, but then they didn't come because I don't think they suffered as badly as the Southern Europeans. And the Southern, I mean, I, I'm talking about Italians, you know, let's talk about our, my family's experience. Mm. Uh, we come from a very poor town. We, we didn't have money, but we had land and we grew things and we lived pretty close to the earth. But it was a pretty difficult existence. And Italy had also gone through uh, sanctions and been placed against uh, Italy. Well, you went through the Mussolini years, of co- co- Correct, correct. So, so I think it got to a point where people thought, well, well we can't survive like this. So, so thousands and thousands arrived in places like Station Pier here in Melbourne, mm. uh, got off boats and just arrived and arrived and arrived. And um, I mean, I, I heard a story, um, the cyclist who came out here during the, before the Second World War, Nino, oh, I'm trying to think of his name, I can't think, there's a, a corner named after him in Ligon Street mm. in uh, Carlton. Famous cyclist, I, I interviewed his son. He had been invited here because he won a gold medal at the Olympic Games. And while he was here, uh, the war broke out. And, of course, Australia had invited him, so he should have been interned, but uh, he actually wasn't and, and was looked after. Well, well, he established a restaurant and a, uh, a, a supermarket sort of style shop. And uh, taxi drivers would bring Italians who got off at Station Pier <laughs> to his shop because that was the only Italian that they had any contact with. And he would help them sort of establish themselves and uh, find accommodation and, and, and that sort of thing. The numbers were enormous. My dad arrived in October of 1949. Wow. And he said he spent two weeks sleeping on a park bench in a park in Carlton, we used to drive. Well, they just, just arrived by boat, and then we just dumped. Well, 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 yeah, and then, then he found accommodation. Uh, he, he did have my mum's uncle, but he was in country New South Wales. So until he organised for him to to get up there, uh, that's that's what what, what he did. Um, uh, remarkable stories, but there was racism too. Darren. My, my dad used to say he would go with his mates to the Albion Charles Hotel in Northcote mm-hmm. and they would be talking the language they knew, which was their dialect in Italian. The Australians would find this confronting. Yeah, speak English, you bastard. Well, we're in Australia. Talk English, all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and many fights would uh, break out. Um, 
there was enormous tension between the two communities. If you go back to the old copies of the El Globo newspaper, uh, a lot of these are detailed, you know, and, and it was made worse too because uh, in the early 60s there were the, uh, the killings at the Victoria Market. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm, all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff happening. And, of course, that tainted people's view of Italian. And everyone thought Italians were and, in the and, and, the, and then Griffith and the marijuana wars and things like that. Yeah, yeah and, and another name comes to mind, Al Grasby. <clears throat> Al Grasby was a fraud and a crook. He wasn't Italian either, he was Spanish. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, he made a name for himself by wearing gaudy jackets and funny ties. But I, I've talked to people in Griffith and uh, Al Grasby was a disgrace. Uh, he... Um, you know, we had the Donald McKay um, um, murder, the marijuana trade. Grasby doesn't come out of us looking good at all. He was the multicultural affairs or ethnic affairs mm. minister in the Whitlam government. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he had this... Uh, he was a good talker. You know, he'd get on television quite often. But as you say... Uh, after he died, a lot of information came out about his connections with the, uh, with the mob. mob and underworld and all that sort of stuff. The Vietnamese migration, Darren, what do you, what do you remember of that? Look, I, I remember well. I was editor of the Sydney Sun the day I saw a graphic photo of a bunch of Vietnamese refugees on a boat landing in, in the Northern Territory. And I, I stole a word from a Chris Christopherson song uh, for the headline on page one, and it said, freedom's just another word. And that was them landing. And they they came here, and the Vietnamese people um, were a great asset to Australia. You, it was no no um, no coincidence that, that kids of Vietnamese refugees were topping their classes in schools all over Australia. You know, they were dedicated. Now, I understand, and you just touched a lot with the Italians about that restaurant, sorry, that little, where, where people would go to. In, in, in Victoria, they set up a sort of little refuge in, Viet, in, uh, in Richmond because that's where somebody was there and somebody spoke Vietnamese and that's where they tended to congregate and start their own little businesses. Um, you know, look, the, the racism is ingrained, um, and it, it was to me. Uh, I was thinking about this just the other day. When when I was growing up in my hometown, like every Australian town and city has a has a, what we call a pie cart, you know, a late, a late not hot dog stand now, they call it, uh, but it was a pie cart where you'd go after a day or night on the booze and you'd, you'd buy a pie cart. In Adelaide, you'd buy a, believe it or not, a pie floater, which is a pie in a, in a, in a bowl of pea soup. But in New Plymouth, there was a thing called Ping's Pie Cart. And it was run by Mr Ping. And he was a chow. He was a Chinaman. And you called him a Chinaman. And I can think back now to the the racist insults thrown out and say, hey, chow, get me a get me a pie. Um just terrible stuff that you'd you'd never never um never suffer now. And uh, the well, only time I saw him get really angry. He'd just do his job and the bloody grill would be spittering and spattering and whatever. He's making food for everybody and making money. But the only time he'd get angry was if, if um, one of the drunks uh, tried to abuse or molest a waitress. And then you saw this dignified man just turn and order you out, you know, order them out. It was amazing. Mm. Um, 
I think when you grow up like that, you don't even realise that you're being disparaging. No, no, no. Well, okay, let me give you an example. My grandmother, gorgeous lady, died at 96. Uh, she lived in a small town in New Zealand. She was a Christian. She would make, she was a dressmaker and, and a milliner. And uh, she, if somebody couldn't afford to pay to have their trousers shortened, she'd do it for nothing, you know. Um, especially Maori people, she'd say, oh, just don't worry about it. You know? And she was, she was a very religious, straight person. But underneath, she was a racist because I can remember growing up and hearing her saying, Darby, 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 we'd go and visit her in Opanaki on a Sunday afternoon. She said, oh, you know, young, young Julie, she's a lovely girl, but she goes out with a Maori boy. Mm. And, and, and that's what you heard. That's what you, that's what you grew up with. One of the people I interviewed, and this is sort of a, a moderately long story, but uh, if I can just uh, say it, Darren. Mm. One of the people I interviewed on Italian radio some years ago was this old lady who was living in Broken Hill. When I interviewed her, she was in her 80s. And she told me the story of how she fell in love with a young Italian boy in the late 1940s in Perth. Mm. They went out, but her dad didn't like her going out with an Italian boy because of the situation with the war and uh, he was racist, I guess. Anyway, he organised for her to do her nursing training in Albany, not in Perth. So he forced their separation. They said goodbye to each other underneath a palm tree in a park in Perth and went their separate ways. She got married, had a family, he got married, had a family. 45 years later, his wife died. And he was always thinking about this young girl that uh, he was in love with in the late 1940s. And he went through all of the phone records, the electoral records, and found her in Broken Hill. She told me when I interviewed her that the morning the phone rang, she was thinking of him. Her husband had died. So anyway, they make contact, they meet, they get together and they resume what they had 45 years earlier. They got married underneath the palm tree in the park in Perth where they said goodbye to each other all those years earlier. And uh, she told me that they had 10 beautiful years living on a property just outside of Broken Hill. One day, uh, he was riding a horse, used to ride a horse. He went away and didn't come back. He had a heart attack and died. Uh, she was very angry with her father for mm. affecting her life in the way that it did. But um, that, that, that of all the interviews I've done, that, that's, that stuck with me. Just what, uh, a what a beautiful story. Mm, and in, mm. a, I, I, in a funny way, and I'm not going to go into detail, but I can relate to that because in 1982, I was engaged to Linda Stoner. Um, and uh, she left me for another bloke, actually, to be honest. Um we're back together nearly 40 years later. Mm, mm. 38, whatever, whatever the sum number is. We're back together and having a lovely time. It's like uh, it is so comfortable 
we can share stuff we had from nearly 40 years ago. And uh, it, is, it is, comfortable is a terrible word to use, but, but that's the truth. It's just like we know each other more than anybody. And so just that's the way it works. It's, uh, it's an, um, as Prince Charles said, whatever this thing called love is, but it is an amazing thing, isn't it? That you can that, establish. That, that, was, that, that was a terrible thing he said. And uh, I think it was aimed at, at um, Camilla to say to Diana, Whatever love, whatever love really is. Yes, raised alarm bells. Yeah, it rang alarm bells to me. I thought, that's not what you say (laughs) when you announce your engagement to this young lady. You say, oh, whatever love is. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. I watched a bit of the uh, the royals' tribute to Prince Philip. It was meant to be for his hundredth birthday, but now he's he died, of course. Why does Prince Charles always sound so constipated (laughs) when he talks? I saw you tweet that. Isn't it true? <laughs> he does. He does. It's, it's, it's like he's constrained in some way, you know, and, yeah. and, and you beautifully put it that he's constipated. But he just can't free himself of, uh, of, of things. I guess it's a lot to do with his upbringing. And, um, probably, probably, because, I mean, pr- pr- despite all the, all the kudos for him, and I found Prince Philip to be the most arrogant, insulting man I've ever met in my life, but... Um, I'm t- you read that he, he used to abuse Charles and tell him he was worthless and that he grew up feeling very insecure, etc., etc. And he's sat waiting. His, his job is a job in waiting for 60 years to become king and uh, maybe he'll die. I mean, when he, had, when he got COVID, I thought, what if he dies before the Queen does? Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, what it, what it shows to me is that, you know, the whole world can think something of you that, you know, you're a prince and, you know, you're entitled and all that sort of stuff. But it really comes down to your personal relationships with the people who you love, mm. your mum, your dad, your family. And well, in fairness to him, Camilla was the love of his life forever. And people don't like it because he wasn't that glamorous and they used to call her the Rottweiler and stuff like that. But it's proven that Charles has loved this woman forever, even when she was married to somebody else. And he couldn't marry her because she wasn't a virgin. That's right, and, and she, 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 she was divorced, a divorcee. Mm. Uh, so so they, they picked out a, uh, a royal incubator in Diana, um, and, and this, there goes the story. And uh, lives affected, damaged because of decisions that were not made honestly. Darren, multiculturalism, what do you think it's given to... Uh, Australia. Um, we, we now have new migrants. You know, we've got people from uh, Sudan, from Africa, these sort of places. Okay, we've, we've got we've got um, wonderful things and not so wonderful things. Some problems. I think the African gangs are a real worry, especially in Melbourne. And uh, we've had police chiefs saying, "Don't even call them gangs and don't do this." Christian Nixon said, "Don't call them gangs when they have been and are." and have less respect for uh, for life than, than, than people in Australia do. I think they're on the plus side um, in the arts and also especially in food. I mean, I most of the food I cook now is Japanese or Chinese. Um, you'll hate this. I, I'm not a pasta fan, so no. a pasta fan. I, I never cook pasta. Well, have you, um, had, have you had properly cooked lasagna or, or something like look, that? I, I find Noki one of the most boring meals in the world. <laughs> it's just bloody spuds done differently, you know. <laughs> Don't like that. I, I used to like a, a, a decent, uh, you know, spag bowl in the old days. My God, back when I was a young journo in Sydney, 
We used to go to what's called the Italos, which shows multiculturalism. We'd go to the Italos, which is the Italian club on Broadway in Sydney. And we'd go there, and for about 50 cents, you get a bowl of, you get a bowl of spag bowl and, uh, and a glass of red wine. 50 that's, cents. That's how we lived, you know. You just, you'd go there. We'd probably go there every night. Oh, let's go to the Italo's. And you'd just go there and order a, a bowl of spag bowl and a uh, spaghetti bolognese and, and, and a glass of red. And, and in those days, of course, when you went to a party, you wouldn't take a bottle of wine. You'd take a flagon of claret. A flagon? Not even a cask. A, Not a, a cask. No, in those days, they didn't have casks. And you'd take a flagon, a flagon <laughs> of claret was, was what you took to parties. The, in New Zealand, we used to say, um, about going to a dinner, you say, open the door with your elbows, which means, you know, have something in you, have a couple of bottles of wine well, in, your, in your arms. Uh, yeah. uh, I, heard, I, what do you want me to do? I'll just open the door with your elbows. <laughs> I've heard many people say, uh, these, these are migrants from England even, you know, like uh, the... the asked to go to a function and they've been asked to bring a plate. So what do they do? They literally bring a plate with nothing on the plate. An empty plate, yeah. I've, I've read that, yeah. Uh, well, that's where we're. No, but look, multiculturalism, going back to the start of this, this program, um, it has been amazing. It, it has made Australia. I mean, we are, we, are, we are a generally multicultural place. People who think we're not are using garlic and... Chinese dishes and the Japanese dishes and Olive oil. herbs. Darren, when the Italians first came here, they couldn't buy olive oil. You had to go yeah. to a chemist's shop. It was like <laughs> medicine that you bought. Look at the olive oil industry now. Half of Victoria is full of olive groves. Do you know, I was on a plane recently, or not recently, a while ago, and I, was sitting there, I don't talk to people on planes usually, but the guy next door to me started chatting, and he was an olive oil judge. Mm. He would trans he'd go around the world judging olive oil competitions, and he said that the best Darren, the best olive oil in the world, isn't from Italy; it's from New South Wales. Mm. Well, there he you said, go. It is brilliant. And now I I buy um, lemon infused and garlic infused olive oil, which I use all the time. Well, it's been proven to be like a, an anti-inflammatory olive oil. Which is That's important. One of the reasons why many Italians, particularly in the South, live really long lives. Uh, there's a place in Italy called Acciaroli. It has the most centenarians uh, per capita uh, in, in, in Europe. I mean, I went there about four or five years ago, and there, there are so many... 100-year-old people. I went into the house of this couple. He was 101 and a fisherman. She was 99. She was cooking him a lunchtime meal and they were both sprightly, they were both healthy and they both had all their faculties. It was quite amazing. Journalists go there. These people are the rock stars of, of the area because they live such long lives. Fish, vegetables, olive oil and wine. That's well, you life. see, this is this is why uh, you get such longevity in Greece. And having been to Athens and been to some of their seaside restaurants um, in Greece, they they serve the most beautiful fresh fish, and vegetables, and salads, and wine, and it's an amazing amazing meal. By the way, Darren, are you a pizza man? No. Uh, look, I lie. I love pizza. Uh, I eat it very rarely. Um, I've been 
I, I pride myself during the, the lockdowns, I have not ordered one takeaway meal. I've cooked for myself every, every day. Um, but I've, I've been, being on a bit of a diet, I've, I've moderated my pizza. I only now only eat margaritas. Um, it's all I need is some tomato, some cheese, some garlic, and uh, and, and and boom the crusts. So I'm, I am a, um, I used to be a, a Mexicana man, a very hot salami, uh, Mexicana, uh, pizza. But I actually now have disciplined myself back to margaritas, which is just tomato, cheese, and garlic. Well, the margarita was the original pizza. That was the first one. That's. Um Invented in now. now let, me t- let me tell you a food story about Italy. Okay, mm. I believe that all French and Italian cuisine originally came from China. I'll tell you why. Marco Polo went to China. He brought back to Italy noodles and pancakes. The French then stole from Marco Polo in Italy crepes and noodles. And I think that if you trace back French and, and Italian cuisine, you could take it back to China, which had been doing this stuff for centuries. I think you're right, actually. And I think uh, uh, they also brought back tomatoes. Because tomatoes are <laughs> very important in the, uh, in the Italian diet. I mean, we're nearly Italian. You go through Italian backyards all over Australia, and from Melbourne Cup Day onwards... They have one thing growing in their backyard, if nothing else, and that is tomatoes. Well, I tell you, um, you know, it's um, t- tomatoes are one of the best defences against prostate cancer that you can find. I've done a lot of reading on it, and and you know, they now tell you the doctors, and I've done some research. They reckon that cooked tomatoes, canned tomatoes, are better for you than raw tomatoes, because whatever the the the, the amino acids or whatever they are in there, they break down and are more easily infused into your body than raw. Well, every March, <laughs> my parents would make their own tomato sauce. Oh. Uh, my dad would grow it. If we didn't grow it, we'd buy the tomatoes and we had this little... Have you ever seen it being done? No. We had this little machine. My mum would boil the tomatoes and then we'd put them in the machine. This machine would go down a hopper and you'd turn a handle by hand and it would push the tomatoes through this squeezer thing and uh, juice would come out. Then you'd put salt in the tomato juice. You'd pass it through a couple of times just to thicken up the uh, tomato. And then you put them in beer bottles, cap them, uh, boil them, which, uh, you know... um, uh, Kills any bacteria. Yeah, or purifies them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then you can keep those tomatoes for two, three, four years uh, under the house. And whenever you have pasta, that's what you use to make Good your Lord. pasta sauce. Well, well, when I when I stop drinking, my favourite Sunday morning tipple was a, a drink called a bloody sh- uh, called a Virgin Mary. Right? It was a, it was a Bloody Mary without the vodka. I nicknamed it a Bloody Shame. But you'd you'd, uh, you'd make you'd get tomato juice and you'd add the usual Tabasco and uh, some lime juice uh, and some Worcester sauce, and that was my drink for a long time. Mm. Yeah. Well, I reckon that'd be very nice with it without the alcohol. Without without the vodka. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, there you go. Mr Hinch, I guess Australia will change even more in the years ahead. Who knows what it's going to be like in the years ahead? As it should, because, I mean, look at the influence that Indian um, people have had in Australia. I mean, Australians eat curries like they're going out of style, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Indian spices. Uh, I find you go to someone's international spice section of a supermarket and some of this stuff, like turmeric, is cheaper than in the, your local market stuff. So don't ignore that. It's, it's worth doing. And, and when it comes to cooking in different countries' food, experiment. And what do you think about Australia being a bigger population uh, to, uh, I, I would like Australia to be a country of 60 million people. Well, Bill Hayden said once, and he got shit-canned for it years ago, that Australia should be 50 million people. And uh, he's probably right. I mean, the size of the country, the size of our cities, if it's done properly with the right, and I hate the word, infrastructure, um, if it's done right, we can grow bigger. And you need you need the increased population, you need their working ethic, you need their taxes, and I think Australia could sustain 50 million people. And just to be safe, you know, we talked about uh, submarines in the previous um, podcast, mm. and that, that, that's all about security and all about sort of uh, ensuring that we uh, uh, can keep safe uh, against foreign threats, namely China. It's much... We are much more powerful militarily and economically if we are a large country. We can sustain a bigger army and we can defend ourselves much better. I agree with you there, but, but I, I go back to the thing. Infrastructure, you know, roads, bridges, safety, um, planned communities, that's where we should go. And you know, I think this country could, could, could handle 50 million easy. I think Bill Hayden was right. Because having said all that, we don't want them all in Melbourne or Sydney. You no, know, we, no, we... no, spread. You know, and, and also say to people, um, like we did with the 10-pound migrants, come to Australia but go and live in Griffith or Orange or Geelong, you know. Um, give them some incentives to go country. It's a big country, a lot of space, and, and also water is not really an issue. I mean, you know, you go to North Queensland, you go to, I mean, Coffs Harbour, where I grew up, we used to get 60 inches of rain a year. <laughs> That's five feet of rain, Darren. That's a lot of rain that comes down, goes back yeah. into the ocean. Yeah. Well, if you captured that, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Mr Hinch, again, thank you very much for uh, talking to us uh, today. It's been uh, excellent. All right, sunshine, and because of the topic, ciao. <laughs> ciao, ciao. Arrivederci, buongiorno. Ci vediamo. <laughs>